Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life. You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen's the author of The Happiness Project, an account of the years she spent test driving every conceivable principle about how to be happy, from the wisdom of the ages to current scientific studies. In this interview, Gretchen's going to share the two keys to happiness. She's also going to talk about what it means and what to do when you're unhappy, plus a mental tactic you can always use to instantly become happier, and why your hobbies have more to do with your life's purpose than you realize. Hey, Gretchen, thanks so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be talking to you. <laughs> well, I'm happy that you're happy to be talking to me. So <laughs> win-win-win. Cool. Well, I'd love to give listeners some more information about who you are and how you came to be where you are, just so they can understand more about your story in the context of this conversation. So if you're up for it, I'd love for you to share some of the challenges that you faced as a young adult and how those challenges ultimately led you to be where you are doing what you're doing today. Well, I think the the main challenge of my young adulthood, looking back on it, was something that I called drift, which is when you make a decision without really making a decision or you just kind of go along with whatever's the easiest thing um, and uh, without really asking yourself what you want. And in my case, I went to law school, which is something that a lot of people, you think, oh, I'll keep my options open and it's always a good choice and it prepares you for so many things and you can always change your mind. And I was really good at research and writing and I did well on the LSAT. And so it just, and my father's a really happy lawyer, so it just seemed like, oh, I might as well go to law school. So I, I didn't really think much about whether I, why I was going to law school. I was just did. And... And as it turned out, I did very well in law school. And um, so then I was like, do a clerkship. And then it was like, oh, do a clerkship for the Supreme Court, and which is an amazing opportunity. So years were going by when I wasn't really deciding what I wanted. I was just doing kind of what seemed like the obvious thing for someone like me to do. And then I finally got to a point where I realized there wasn't really any law job that I wanted. And I finally admitted to myself that really what I wanted to do was to be a writer. And if I looked back on all my, my history, what I'd done in high school, what I had done in college, what I'd done in my free time, they were all things that you would do to prepare to be a writer. But I had never admitted that to myself. And so at, at a certain point, I realized I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer, and I had to give it a try. And so then I made the switch into writing, which, you know, took some doing. Um, and, that, and ever since then, I've been a writer, a full-time writer of books mostly, and now of a blog for the last six years. Um, but for me, I think what happens to a lot of people is they, they don't, it's very uncomfortable to think about what you really want and what you're really good at and what you're really interested in. And it's easy to think about what, how you wish you were or how other people think you ought to be or what, what they think will make you happy and not really push yourself. Some people know. Um, my sister always knew about herself, but then some people are like me, and they find it easy not to ask themselves those questions. So I think that was the central challenge of my young adulthood. Okay, awesome. Very cool. And 
So I want to talk about the writing that you do and some of the books that I've come across that you've written. And before we talk about um, Happier at Home and the Happiness Project, I'd love for you to define happiness. It kind of gets to me a little bit because I think happiness is a word that when people, when, when you ask people, like, what do you want in life, but oftentimes they'll say, I just want to be happy. But uh, it seems so ambiguous oftentimes, like love or God or some of these other words that just mean so many different things to so many different people. So I'd love if you could, there I, I use the word love, perfect example, I'd love if you could define happiness and perhaps uh, give us the, if there are different types of happiness, just talk a little bit about that. Well, actually, I never do define happiness. Um, as a lawyer, I spent a semester arguing about the definition of contract and tort. And if anything, like you say, happiness is this incredibly difficult word to define. It has something like 15 academic definitions um, of happiness. And I decided that, you know, for my purposes and sort of for the regular person who's, like, not running a research facility on happiness, um, <laughs> It wasn't that important to, to arrive at a final perfect definition and that that was almost a distraction. And like you say, people would, they, they argue about, is it peace? Is it satisfaction? Is it serenity? Is it bliss? And I didn't feel like that was, that wasn't what I was interested in. And what I, the way I think about it is much more about being happier. And instead of thinking about, well, what is happiness and how would I get there, am I happy, I say, could I be happier? If I did this differently, then next week, next month, next year, would I be happier? And I think that's a helpful question because um, it gets you moving in the right direction, but you don't worry about the arrival or the def like hitting some magical destination. Um, some people really want me to say, like, well, how can you make your children happy? And I'm like, well, what, is it, what does it mean to be happy? You know, like, uh, yes, no, it's like, a, it's like this on-off switch. And life is complicated, and, and happiness is complicated. So I think it's easier to think about, well, would, could you make yourself happier, and how would you do that so that you're just the, you're moving in the right direction? Yep, so then how would we know if we were happier? I think you know. I mean, this is like, uh, uh, you know, the whole thing about obscenity. I know it when I see it. I, I think people know if they're happier. I think I think they know. Okay, right on. Well, let's transition a little bit into your Happiness Project book, and, and can you kind of tell the listeners where that came from, what the idea behind it was, and um, kind of where it's led you? Um, well, the Happiness Project, I, I was stuck on a bus uh, in the pouring rain, and I didn't have anything to do to distract me. So I looked out the window and I was asked, thinking, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, I want to be happy. Um, like we were just talking about, but I thought, I don't even know what it means to be happy or what happiness is or how I could be happier. And here it was. I thought of it as being the most important thing in my life, to be happy. And I never gave it any thought. Um, so I decided I should have a happiness project. And like I said, I'm, I'm a very kind of analytical, lawyerly, law-trained mind. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get a giant book from, stack of books from the library, and I'll make a big list, and I'll figure out what I should do and see what I could do to make changes in my life that might make me happier. And I had started it just thinking I was going to do it for myself. But then before too long, I thought, wow, maybe this would be good to be my next book. And then I decided I would write a book about it. Okay, awesome. And then that's led you ultimately to 
your latest book, which just came out, which is Happier at Home. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, with Happier at Home, what I realized is I had done all this thinking and writing and reading about happiness. And, and, and one day when I was unloading the dishwasher in my kitchen, I was just struck by this realization, something I had never really focused on before, which is that the idea of home is really at the foundation of, of happiness for me and I think for most people. And it's so many of the elements of a happy life converge in home. And it's funny because we want all these different things from home. Like we want it to be comfortable, but we also want it to be exciting. And we want it to be private, but we also want it to be a place of engagement. And we want to feel safe, but we also want to feel like we can take risk. And we want it to be neat and orderly and beautiful, but it also that often is like a big um, hassle and means a lot of chores and work that we don't feel like doing. So, um, so I became instantly sort of very preoccupied with this idea of home and home as the center, a, a way to look at happiness with this idea at the center. And I decided that I wanted to do another happiness project, but this time focus much more narrowly, go much deeper into the elements of home. Okay. Right on. Cool. So I'd love to now that we got the overall broad picture of some of the books and how it led, how your path led you to write those books. You know, I think in our traditional classes and curriculums that we have in our educational lives, we have, you know, standard classes, biology, history, English, so on and so forth, but we, we never really have a class that helps us understand ourselves. So all the attention yep. is usually put outward, not inward. Yes. And uh, additionally, we, we don't have classes to help us understand how to create a happy life, especially in the first 12 years of school if you're not a positive psychology major. So uh, assuming that we knew nothing, uh, people, we being the people listening to this call right now, assuming we knew, we knew nothing, and you had the next couple of minutes to distill some of the most powerful wisdom that you found, and you were the teacher, um, yeah. what would you teach to the class right now so that we could start to create sustainably happy lives? Well, if you were going to say, what is the key to happiness, you know, if you had to pick one thing, um, there's two ways you can answer that question depending on what framework you use, I think. And one way to answer that question, ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists could agree on this, and that is that the key to happiness is strong relationships with other people. And that's what makes us happy, is when we when we feel like we have enduring, intimate relationships, when we feel like we belong, when we feel like we can confide, when we feel like we can get support, but just as important for happiness, give support to other people. So anything that we do with our time, energy, or money that strengthens our existing relationships or broadens our relationships is something that's likely going to make us happier. So if you're thinking about what you should do, it, you should, like, and now I do this much more. It, I, I analyze decisions that I'm making saying, is this something that's going to strengthen relationships or not? And that helps you decide how to use your time, energy, and money. Um, but there's another way you could answer the question, what is the key to happiness? And the, the way to think about it that way is to say, the key to happiness is self-knowledge. And the precept to be thyself is to know thyself, is on the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. It's one of the most ancient pieces of advice about happiness. Know thyself. And you think, what could be easier than knowing yourself? Because all I do is hang out with myself all day. And yet, 
it's very easy to be misled about yourself because you think about the way you wish you were or the way you think you ought to be or the way other people want you to be or what you just assume is true of human nature. And you don't think about, well, what is actually true for you? And the fact is you can only have a happy life if it's built on the foundation of your own nature, your own values, and your own interests. And what I've found is the more my life actually reflects my interests, my values, my temperament, the happier I become. But there's so many times where you don't, you just, you don't think about or you don't question. Like one thing for me was music. Like everybody likes music, right? Music is great. And I always felt bad about the fact that I just didn't like music that much. I mean, okay, I like it fine, but I'm not that interested in music. And I don't, you know, I just don't like it that much. And I always felt like I should study more, spend more time in it, or make myself like it because everybody likes music. But the fact is I finally realized, you know, I'm just not that into music, and I shouldn't think that I should be using my time, energy, or money trying to, to do it if I don't want to. i got other stuff that I want to do. Um, and it's funny how a lot of times people assume that some things are inherently fun or inherently interesting. Nothing is inherently fun. Nothing is inherently interesting. You are the one who makes it fun or interesting. And the more your life reflects that, then the happier you're going to be. So that's when... Self-knowledge is key. And it's hard because sometimes we don't want to admit to ourselves the truth about ourselves. Like we, we have this fantasy that we're like really outgoing and gregarious or we're really outdoorsy and adventurous or we're really, um, you know, uh, cutting edge or, you know, or, or, and, or artistic or whatever it is. Um, but you sort of, you are what you are. And you can kind of... Um, you can you can learn to do new things and you can develop interests to some extent, but to a very great extent, you just you are who you are. And so the more you know who you are, the more you can make decisions that are in line with your nature. Yeah, I think so much of what young adults are going through, especially in their early twenty uh, early twenties, is is an identity quest and it's trying yeah. to figure out like who who am I and what am I here to do? And it's particularly challenging because we live in a culture that bombards us with messages of who we should be. And I mean that's based on um, or it comes from pop culture and mass media and the giant corporations that control them and oftentimes they paint a picture that we're not good enough as we are so that we can purchase a product and feel better and in some way that keeps the economy going, right? So I want to throw in that I'm grateful to live in New York City. I'm grateful for all the privileges that I had and I have and I don't mean to sound too uh, pessimistic here about the way that society works, but it, it's a really interesting distinction to make when we start to question and ponder what is authentic to my nature and what are just cultural um, cultural norms that have, in a, set, in, a, in a sense, programmed who I think I am and where is the distinction between what's authentic to me and myself, and this is where that self-knowledge comes in, and what do I think is is perhaps part of me or, or um, the culture just had such a, a large part in programming who, who I've become. Well, one of the things that's a really helpful question to ask yourself when you're not sure or when you're trying to figure this out is, and this sounds so basic as to be laughable, but stay with me, is to say, what do I do? What do I actually do? When I have some free time or when I'm deciding what to do, what do I do? 
Because what people do is a very good indication of what they feel like doing. But a lot of times people assume that everybody makes the same choice that they would do. So, like, for example, a friend of mine said, oh, yeah, well, you know, I moved to New York and I needed a part-time job, so, of course, I got a job in a florist shop. And I was like, what do you mean, of course? And she said, well, everybody likes to work in a florist shop. I was like, are you insane? Like, it would never occur to me to work in a florist shop. You know, I mean, but to her, it was like, well, of course, that's what everybody would do. Um, Or a friend of mine was trying, was thinking about um, getting a job. And she said, well, I really think I'd like to be an editor at a major women's magazine. And I said, well, that's interesting because although I could imagine that you could get a job like that, I never see reading those kind of magazines. And she's like, oh, yeah, I know. I don't read them. I was like, well, why do you think you would be good at creating something that you don't even enjoy as a consumer? That seemed to be so strange. I don't think she would have been good at it. And so to say to yourself, well, what do you do? Do you, do you want to be out in, out in nature? Do you want to um, be writing? Like that's what I, how I figured out what I want to do. So I was like, well, what am I doing in my free time? Well, I'm writing a book in my free time, and that's something that people do for a living. I don't have to treat it like a hobby. I could try to do it as my job. Um, and so I think that by looking at what you're doing, you get important clues as to the kind of thing that you like to do. Another friend of mine said, well, of course, the thing is everybody likes a chance to get up and perform in front of a group. And I said, in fact, (laughs) if you look at the fears, when people talk about the fears that they have, the fear of public speaking ranks higher than fear of death. People are more afraid of performing in front of a group than they are of dying. Um, I was like, you're, that's very unusual about you. And so sometimes it's easy to take for granted the kind of things that you like to do. But then once, if you say to yourself, well, I really like this, I really like this, I really like this, I really like this, then you start to get a picture of the kind of career that you might like or the kind of place that you might like to live. You know, if you're really, really into nature, you're probably not going to enjoy New York City as much as somebody who's not that into nature. Um, maybe you could make it work, but it would be more of a sacrifice for you, whereas somebody else might feel like, oh my gosh, I really want to live in this place because I can go skiing, I can go, I can go surfing, I can do all this um, within an hour from my house. There are places where you can live that are like that. So it's, 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 it's by asking yourself, well, what do you actually do with your time? What do you, what, what do you actually do? Um, instead of sort of like, well, what's the fantasy ideal person that you would like to be, which is kind of the way some people construct their lives. Where they're like, well, this is a fantasy that I want to create, so I'm going to take steps to take me closer there. But if that fantasy is not has no relationship to the way you actually are, it's not going to be very successful. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So, based on the the question, the initial question that I asked about what you would teach to the class, you brought it to two things. One was knowledge of self, which we just spoke about a bit, and the other was creating strong connections. Relationships. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you brought that up because I think that that is a particular challenge that young adults face, which is that oftentimes when we go through issues, when we, when we face hard times and we're faced with obstacles and challenges, our, our tendency perhaps sometimes is to seclude ourselves opposed to go ask for help because we feel like asking for help is going to make us vulnerable, and if we're vulnerable, we'll be weak, and we don't want to be exposed, and in that sense, oftentimes, we can isolate ourselves when we most need those connections. So I'd love to hear what advice you have for how we can go about cultivating strong connections in our lives. 
Well, one of the things is, you know, it takes time. It takes time and persistence to create relationships and sustain them. And it's interesting that you say that young adulthood is, a, is kind of a trying to strain of relationships because to older people, young adulthood is, is a time where it's very easy to have many, many, many relationships because you don't have children, which are a huge, take a huge amount of time. And so a lot of times you don't have very much time for your friends. Um, and so when you're a young adult, that is a great time to really pay a lot of attention to your friends and to build those strong friendships so that you can sustain it over other periods of your life where you have less time to invest in making new friends. And you don't have the ready-made, like in college, and even right after college, it's much easier to meet a lot of people who are sort of similar to you. And that becomes more difficult, um, like when people start moving a lot, um, so you really want to pay a lot of attention to it. And it's really worth keeping up with friendships. Like a thing that I think is really smart is when I look at people who have maintained strong friendships for a very long time, even when people have moved all over the country, a lot of times they'll pick a weekend um, and they'll all get together that weekend every year. You know, like they'll say, we're going to get together for Columbus Day weekend. And they just make it, it's just on the calendar and every year, most or all of them come back, and so they see each other just that once a year. And if you see somebody once a year and you, like, stay in touch through whatever means throughout, you know, here and there, you can keep that relationship strong. And it's just easy to let these relationships to sort of drift away. Now, I'm a big fan of social media and, and things like Facebook and Twitter to help people stay in touch. Now, some people say, oh, well, these things aren't good because instead of meeting face-to-face, we're all sitting behind our computers alone, click, click, click. But in my experience, it makes people want to get together face-to-face more when, they're in, when they can keep in touch in these easy ways. It's, just, it's, much, it's much more convenient. Um, it's easier to stay in touch because you don't have to know like, somebody's phone number or address. You, you, you can have these little points of connection and update that make you feel connected to a person. And then when you're back in the same city or you have time or whatever, then it's much easier to reconnect. So I think they're really super valuable tools. Now, like any tool, it's a good tool but a bad master. And if you use it too much, it can become a negative. But I think used wisely, it's, um, it's very helpful. Now, you're talking about also about the idea that when people are, feel unhappy that they tend to become isolated. And that's very true. Many people's reaction is to pull back. But in fact, studies show, and I think common experience confirms, that people are made more cheerful. They feel better when they're connecting with other people. Now, you might not want to go to a cocktail party or, you know, like to a bar, but, but just to see like one friend or talk to one friend on the phone. But just really pushing yourself to have these moments of connection and to feel like you're engaging with somebody is going to really help lift your mood. Almost everybody feels better, gets a lift in their mood if they engage with someone else, even somebody they don't know, even if they just like talk to a sales clerk. There's something about that moment of connection that makes people feel better. Yeah, I, I want to draw the distinction between uh, the quality and the quantity of friendships. And you spoke about it right there. But subtly you touched on it when you mentioned going to a cocktail party versus just calling you know, a friend of yours. But when, we, when I think of strong connections, I don't necessarily think of massive amounts of, of you know, 800 million thousand followers on Twitter. I, I think of like a few key people that I can go to in my life that when shit hits the fan, I can just, I can really open up with them, both in the good and the bad times. And to me, that has been the most, more valuable than having X amount of followers or friends on Facebook and Twitter. So how do we go about 
creating these stronger connections that I think are based more on a place of authenticity and kind of who we are at our core versus social validation and what the latest trending topics are? Well, I don't know about that. I don't feel like it's a choice between a few real friends and many superficial fake friends. I feel like there's, there's many gradations of friends. And you can have many friends who are, who are different. Who, they're not all going like, to be in your wedding or even at your wedding. But they can still be a friend in that you have something in common that you're excited about, or they are tied to your past in a way that's important to you, or they, are, they play some role or are involved in some way that's, that's important, even if, it's, even if this person isn't somebody who is going to become your nearest, dearest friend. That doesn't mean that they're not, they, they aren't, it's not significant or it's not worth some time. But you're absolutely right. We cannot maintain a hundred deep, dear friendships. It's just, it's just not possible because a really true, dear friend is somebody that, that takes time and it takes a serious investment both in terms of giving them support, getting support, and you know, really following what's going on in their lives. And so there's a limit to how much you can do. And I think people differ very greatly on how many people like that they can have in their lives. And people's circumstances are often, are often different. Like somebody you knew when you were ch- a child, you know in a different way from anybody else that you, know, that you know later. There's just something about somebody who you knew you in fourth grade um, that you can never, you, you know, you can never it, it, replicate that. Um, so long-term friendships like that have a special value. And then, you know, if you go through a very intense experience with somebody, and then sometimes it's just, it's just over the years you develop that. Or then there's the people who are the soulmates, so you just meet them for the first time and you're just instantly good friends and you know that this is somebody that you're really going to fight to keep in your life. Um, so I think a lot of it is just, being, is just recognizing the importance of these people and not just assuming that, you don't have to take care of it or that you, you don't need to worry about making time for somebody um, because, because it's always going to be there because friendships fade um, if they're untended, um, just like anything else. And I think one thing that happens as you get older, um, like maybe after college, is people feel like it's kind of artificial to try to make friends. Like friendships should be spontaneous and like it should just happen naturally. Well, in some circumstances it happens naturally, but some, like, let's say you move to a new city and you don't know anybody. You're going to kind of have to work at it, and you're going to be much happier once you have some friends. And so I think sometimes you, 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 you sort of have to take yourself through the steps of it and even be uncomfortable when you're making a friend. Um, if, it, if, it's, if you're not in a circumstance where life is just kicking up possible friends for you to, to make. Awesome. Love it. Well, thanks for the clarification on that. And to transition a a little bit, I have Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning in front of me, and I want to read a quote from the book and and get your opinion on it. So in, in the book, he quotes, Our current mental hygiene philosophy stresses the idea that people ought to be happy, that unhappiness is a symptom of maladjustment. Such a value system might be responsible for the fact that the burden of unavoidable unhappiness is increased by unhappiness about being unhappy. So to end the quote there, I think what that, what the question that I get prompted with after reading that is, is it okay to be unhappy? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think negative emotions have a very important place uh, in, a, in a happy life. And one of the, the most important things they do is they, t- they show you that something needs to change. So if you feel guilty, if you feel angry, 
if you feel remorseful, if you feel bored, if you feel resentful. These are all big flashing signs that something is amiss. And you could be doing something differently, perhaps, that would make you happier. And there's also circumstances, and Frankel certainly writes about this all the time, where it's not possible to be happy. It's not, you wouldn't even want to be happy um, because your circumstances are such that at that moment, or for a long period of time even, it's not possible for you to be happy. But I think what you can do is to be as happy as you can be under the circumstances. And when you are as happy as you can be, you give yourself the emotional wherewithal to withstand very difficult times. So let's say your mother is in the hospital and very, very sick. You could run yourself ragged, stay up all night, not, not eat, never take a break, and you, you're going to become a basket case yourself in two weeks. That's not going to be helpful to anybody, not to you, not to your mother, not to your family, not to anybody, because you're just going to be so burnt out and so worn out that it will be very difficult for you to be helpful. Or you could say, I'm in a really stressful time. I need to make sure I get my sleep. I need to make sure I eat breakfast. I need to make sure that every once in a while I like go out and see a funny movie or I go out and have coffee with a friend or I somehow give myself mental breaks so that I can face a very difficult situation with as much patience and equanimity as I can. And probably you will be much better able to deal with this very difficult situation. It's not that you, want, you think that you're going to make yourself happy because it's a very unhappy time. But you can try to deal with it in a way that, um, so that you are, are equipped to manage it as best you can. Because I think sometimes our, our, our response is to just sort of throw ourselves deeply into it. And then, and then, and then, it's, then that just compounds whatever the problems are. Yep. Well, one of the things I read about in Happier at Home you were speaking about is making the positive argument. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what that means? Yeah, there's, it's, it's kind of uncannily effective. Um, so it turns out people have this tendency, and you might call it uh, argumentative reasoning, which is if you make an argument to yourself or you hear an argument and you try to defend it, you're going to be really good at defending it. Because you'll, you'll think of all these reasons. And so you might say to yourself, well, my, my, my best friend is so thoughtless. And so all, your mind is going to instantly populate that idea with all these examples of how thoughtless your best friend is. But if you make the positive argument, if you, are, if you make the other side of the argument, it's amazing how often you will come up with all these contradicting arguments on the other side. So you say, my best friend is actually very thoughtful. You will come up with all of these examples of thoughtfulness. Or if you say, I'm really shy. You think of all these reasons why you're shy. But then if you say, actually, I'm pretty outgoing. You'll think of all these reasons why you would think that you're outgoing. And so, um, and the problem is, is that when you argue one side, you feel like you've been very rational and you have all this, these justifications for your ideas, and you do. But you have them probably on the other side just as much. So this is good if, like, if you're having tension with somebody else like you're, or like you're, you're angry at your boss. If you just think, well, how could, it, could I argue the other side? It just lets you, um, a lot of times it sort of magically uh, relieves bad feelings because you see that there's this perfectly valid opposite point of view. 
So the, the trick is in the moment to have the awareness that, boom, holy crap, let me, let me hang on a second. Can I argue the other side before you flip yeah. out, before you want to punch a wall or quit your job, right? It's, can I yeah, argue the you other put side? Your, but you put your finger on the tricky part, exactly, which is to, the mindfulness in the moment to be able to do that. And that's what's always so hard is to remember to count to ten or to remember to make the positive argument is very, very difficult. This actually works better, I think, than something like counting to ten, because at least I often am walking around just in my head feeling resentful or angry. It's not even like I do it in the moment, but it's just like I catch myself doing it as I'm just walking down the street. And I'm like, oh, here I am complaining about X, Y, Z in my head. Can I make the other argument? So it's easier, but you're right. It's, you've, got to, you've got to remember to do it, and that is tricky. So how how can we remember to do it a little bit better? What are some like is you have a reminder? Can you wear a band on your wrist or set a, something on your Outlook calendar to tell you, hey, you know, have you thought about where are you right now and how do you what, what do you feel about that? Can you make the positive argument? How do you go about building in that self awareness into your life? Well, the way that I do it is I have I have these resolutions that I follow, and every month I have um, in in Happier at Home I had new resolutions. And so every night I would review my resolutions and give myself a check mark about whether I had followed that resolution or not. And so this, this serves two forms, two, two purposes. One is it holds me accountable. Like I say I'm going to do something, but am I really doing it or not? And also by constantly looking at the list, it's uppermost in my mind. And I find that when you just think about it a lot, it, it, then it's active in your imagination and you think of it. Um, some people really like using their phones and stuff. I don't like having devices. Um, pinging me. So I, that's, not, that's not my way, but I know a lot of people like that and really use that and find that these, these reminders are very helpful. Um, for me, just this, this nightly pen and paper exercise is what worked. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, hey, I want to honor your time. There's one more question I want to get out there. And the question is, a couple of years ago I was doing something very different than I'm doing now. It's kind of my... Um, your, my version of your lawyer story um, uh-huh. with, its own, yeah. with its own twist and spin. And it, the, the, what it came to at a point was in the beginning it was really exciting, but after a while the monotony had built up so much and it was so out of tune with who I kind of authentically was that I wasn't waking up excited in the morning. And I remember just thinking like the same way that you had that revelation of what do I want? Well, I want to be happy. I had this epiphanal moment where it was what do I want? I just want to wake up excited in the morning. So yeah. People are listening to this chat right now, and I, I speak to a lot of young adults, and I hear that over and over. It seems to really resonate that people want to wake up excited in the morning. So what's one thing that we can, you know, th- we can, listening to this call now, we can plan, okay, I want to wake up more excited tomorrow morning. What can I do in order to kind of create the circumstances so that I can be happier and more excited when I wake up? Well, I mean, I think you need to. I think you need to make sure that your life reflects your values, um, and what is it that makes you excited? And to really think, well, what is it that really makes me excited, and how can I how can I make that a central part of my life? Um, whether it's art or nature or travel or writing or uh, connecting with other people or persuasion, you know, there's all. If it's performance. Um, I think you really have to be very honest with yourself about what it is that you like and what it is that you're good at and how to make that a centerpiece of your life. It's scary. It's a very scary process to go through, which is why I think a lot of people don't do it. Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. And, and yeah, right, you and I have time. been there. 
Yeah, right on. Cool. What I, what I found is that nervousness and excitement kind of share the same continuum in that when I get yeah. really nervous about something, it just usually yeah. means I'm, I'm really excited but associating some type of fear with it. Yes. Well, one thing that happened to me and I've, is if there's something where if somebody mentions it, you feel intensely uncomfortable, um, like to a weird degree, that's a very, very important thing. Like I remember when right before I was getting ready to make my switch, I was reading the alumni notes. You know how your college sends you those magazines with what everybody's doing? And I noticed that whenever I would read about people who had cool jobs, even cool law jobs, I just felt this kind of mild interest. But when I read about people who had writing jobs, I felt this sickness. It, it made me just feel sick. And then I thought to myself, I feel sick because that's what I want. And so, like you say, this feeling of intense anxiety is sometimes a big clue. Or a friend of mine decided to go back to try again to be an actress because she said someone, she was in a conversation and someone started talking about acting and she started crying. So these, this intense emotional reaction, and, which is often extremely unpleasant, is a clue. Um, and so that's another way where negative emotions are, can be important signals because that, negative, that, that intense anxiety can be your signpost. Yeah, right on. Well, I want to honor your time and just, you know, I'm beyond appreciative for you taking the time to share your wealth of wisdom around happiness with us on this chat, and I'm trusting that uh, young adults, that we got a ton out of this. So, again, just thank you so much, Gretchen. Thank you. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. It was so interesting. Yeah, right on. And if people want to find out more about you or what you're up to, how can they go about doing that? Um, uh on my blog, The Happiness Project, which is happiness-project.com, there's more about happiness than anyone could ever read. Um, and then also my new book, Happier at Home, um, talks about a lot of the things that we've been covering today. Okay, right on. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you. So let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas from this interview. Big idea number one is strong relationships. Ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists can agree on this. The key to happiness is strong relationships with others. It's when we feel like we have enduring relationships. It's when we feel like we belong and can confide. It's when we can get support, but more importantly, when we can give support to other people. Anything you do with your time, energy, and money that strengthens existing relationships is likely something that's going to make you happier. That is a huge idea. So if you're thinking about what you should do, ask yourself, is this something that's going to strengthen relationships or not? Big idea number two is self-knowledge. Another key to happiness is self-knowledge. The precept is know thyself. It's so easy to be misled about who we are because we think about who we want to be or who we should be or the way others want us to be or what you assume of human nature. But we don't actually think about what would make us happy. We can only be happy if we have a life that's built on a foundation true to our nature, our values, and our interests. The more your life reflects these things, the happier you'll become. Some people think things are inherently fun or interesting, but nothing is inherently fun or interesting. You are the one who makes it so. The more of your life that reflects your interests, the happier you'll be. And when you have some free time, what is it that you find yourself doing? Pay attention and use that information. Big idea number three, it's okay to be unhappy. Negative emotions have a real important place in a happy life. They show you that something's off and needs to change. So if you feel guilty, 
angry, remorseful, bored, resentful. These are all big flashing signs that something is off. Use that information to figure out what would make you happier. Now, of course, there's always circumstances where it's impossible to be happy, and even if you could be happy, why would you want to be? But what you can do is be as happy as you can be under the circumstance and don't beat yourself up about not being happier. You can deal with it in a way which will keep you equipped to handle it as best as you can. Now let's throw in an extra big idea. Number four, make the positive argument. People have a tendency, if you make an argument to yourself, you'll most likely be really good at finding evidence to defend it. That's kind of how our mind works. It's great at coming up with examples of what we believe. Instead of making the negative argument, why not try to make the positive argument and look for the beauty and the benefit of each situation? Next time you're looking at something negatively, ask yourself, how can I make the positive argument? In order to do this, we need to have awareness so that we can catch ourselves. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship to get to know each other better over time and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, And we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.